Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing, Episode 255, Mr. Magical Realism, Bruce Taylor. It's basically about the business of writing, and they tell you the stuff they wish that someone had told them when they got started as writers. You know, somebody can be a successful marketer and not necessarily provide a quality product. I'm going to let Moses go because he's frothing at the mouth to talk about this one. (laughs) (laughs) I like writing. I like reading. I like to immerse myself in books. That seems like a pretty good career choice. (laughs) Oh, you sound terrible. What happened? I'm just kidding. Oh, man. And now, constructed on a Zeppelin by an apprentice mage and delivered by a rocket ship to a benevolent dragon, Adventures in Sci-Fi Public Sci-Fi I'm just going to do a quick intro here and then jump into it. Just wanted to mention, got a couple of book reviews on the blog this week. I reviewed Dark Days, which is the sequel to Apocalypse Z um, by Manel Loriero. Not sure exactly how to say that. And we also have our reviewer Ben Arzate reviewed The Final Trick of Funny Man and Other Stories by Bruce Taylor. So if you want to come and check out and see what Bruce's fiction is like, there you go. Also would like to brag just a little bit because I'm super excited about our guests coming up. Uh, Marie Brennan, author of A Natural History of Dragons and The Tropic of of Serpents. Um, She'll be on May 8th. We just recorded that today. John Dodds and I did. And tomorrow I'm going to be interviewing Elizabeth Baer with a guest interviewer, Sarah Shorn from Bookworm Blues. She was so excited that her boss had to send him send her home early, so <laughs> and that episode will air April 29th because we have a special giveaway coming with that. I have a few more interviewees that I'm very excited, but I probably shouldn't mention them until it happens just in case, but for now though, enjoy this episode with Bruce Taylor. And if you missed it, we did interview him earlier on the show, and I will put a link in the show notes to that, uh, Bruce Taylor on Magical Realism. Welcome to the show. Today we have Bruce Taylor back on the line. Hey, Bruce, how's it going? It's going well. Thank you very much. Well, you've left me in suspense to hear the story of how you became Mr. Magical Realism. Uh, uh, so, <laughs> and after, uh, I did read Like Water for Quarks, uh, the book you edited, and uh, really enjoyed it. I have read some Magical Realism before, but that was, uh, there were some really excellent stories in that. So I'm very glad you introduced that to me. And we're going to have another interview later on where we discuss those stories more in detail. Um, but for for our audience' sake, uh, highly recommend checking out that book, Like Water for Quarks. Uh, yeah, I need to say that. Um, my, my co-editor, Elton Elliott, uh, it was kind of, we've been talking about that for a very long time and how it all finally came about. It just came about, but uh, we 
it, it was amazing how well it went and how we just had this great cooperation with people. And I'm just, I'll be delighted to talk about that the next, the next time around because it was, uh, it was quite the venture. Yes, I'm sure it was. And if our audience hasn't heard, um, Bruce and I talked about magical realism in another interview based kind of on his appearance at ShyCon this year and the panel he was on, um, what was it called? Quantum Physics Meets Magical Realism? I believe that's what it was. Yeah. All right. No more suspense. Let's let's hear your story, Bruce. And we, I've kind of had a series going where talking about educational paths for fans of speculative fiction, uh, people that want to be writers, people that want to work in the publishing industry. And so I'm interviewing people that have had success uh, just to kind of hear their story, see how they did it. And uh, hopefully our audience will, will take something from that. Okay. Okay. So, um, you'd like me to start like at college or want to ask me a specific question or what? How would I like to do this? Maybe something eventful that happened that that we we couldn't leave out of this story of how you became Mr. Magical Realism. Okay. Um, you know, I've always wanted to be a writer, but this is going to back up a little bit. I, I never got a lot of uh, support from my family for it. The only support I got was from the educational system um, here in Seattle. And uh, I was uh, in the uh, Shoreline School District, which I think is probably one of the best school districts there ever was. The teachers were just went out of their way to really help students uh, focus their basically focus their lives. <laughs> it was quite extraordinary. So when I discovered science fiction when I was like 10 and 11, I started writing stories, and the teachers would read them in class. Uh, and that was really kind of cool. And so I kept this kind of background track of writing, and I was always attracted, I realized, it went along to science fiction to imaginative uh, literature. And when I got to college, I met um, a couple of professors there, uh, Jack Cady and Jack Leahy, who turned out to be um, absolutely instrumental in opening the doors in terms of what it was to be a writer and what it meant. And uh, and Jack Cady later on turned out to be a good figure in the world of science fiction fantasy. Won the fantasy. Won I believe won the um, on the video for a couple of stories, and he, I'm not sure quite how he ended up getting into, into, um, you know, imaginative literature, because as, when I met him back in 69, he was very much into uh, literature with a capital L, and um, won the Iowa Prize for Literature, and uh, next thing I knew, he was, there There was in science fiction and fantasy, and I'm going, like, hey, that's really, really cool. But he was uh, a good friend until he died in, um, I think it was 2005, I believe, somewhere around there. Um, and um, so I kept certainly in touch with him. And as I was doing that, um, uh, when I met him back in 69, around the was telling me about workshops, and this other professor, Jack Lee, suggested I go to uh, uh, suggest I go to this Clarion West writing workshop, which I did, and it was um, quite a different experience in terms of um, realizing that we probably had a lot of 
work to do with my writing. <clears throat> and um, so I realized also that I had to get a daytime job to support myself. I wasn't going to get rich real fast doing what I was doing. So the writing turned in to be more and more of an exploration, uh, writing for the sake of writing, and if you will, more of a, not quite sure how to say this, more of an artistic track to do it for the sake of doing it. And as I was doing it, I was reading, I just, I just followed my interest in what I like to read, and um, I have as much, um, I have a, a pretty good basis in literature, Western literature, but I always noticed that even then I was attracted to like folks like Kafka. I was attracted to really people who were really doing kind of really off-the-wall types of stuff and realizing that, gosh, you know, science fiction has a lot of really good writers, but so does, you know, um, classical literature. Folks like, um, gosh, folks like uh, Kopek, who gave us the word robot with his book. And I also came up with this book called um, War with the Mutes, which is a very fabulously entertaining book. I'm going like, well, there's a lot of crossover between classical literature and what we call literature and science fiction, fantasy. Okay, this is really cool. And I kept exploring. I kept playing with these ideas. And as I was going along, I was getting things published. But again, my primary interest was moving toward um, just the fascination with the creative process in and of itself. And writing, writing was its own reward. And as I went along, I uh, kept looking for other things and kept running across some Spanish authors. I found that you know, kind of intriguing. I heard about um, 100 Years of Solitude by Marquez, and I'd been hearing about these folks, and finally bought a book. And it's on my shelf for the longest time. It was uh, Eye of the Heart by Barbara Howes, H-O-W-E-S. And it was a collection of South American fantastic and contemporary literature. So I was going along writing stuff and getting this material published. And, um, you know, people were saying that I was right in the area, that mysterious area between surrealism and literature, not obviously quite knowing what to say what it was I was doing, because I wasn't exactly sure what I was doing either. But I was having a great time. And I had a job working in a um, on a uh, inpatient lock psychiatric floor at Harborview Hospital here in Seattle, which was an incredible experience, uh, just really incredible. So I'd come home at night instead of being tired. I was like, oh, my God, what I thought. I, I just got to write about this. And it always came out in terms of this kind of really kind of fantastic play on on reality and blending reality and fantasy. I was just I was just eating eating this stuff up. I was having a great time. Sometimes I was doing like, God, five stories a day, forty stories a month. I was sometimes doing a story, just 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 doing a story at work, you know, just writing like crazy. It was just so fascinating. And finally, one day after getting after having firma material published in various places in the uh, the broad umbrella of imaginative literature science fiction, fantasy, surrealism, and whatnot. I finally picked up the book, Eye of the Heart, and I started reading it, and I got halfway through, and I'm going like, 
this stuff is called magic realism. This is what I do. Oh, my God. This is amazing stuff. This is really amazing stuff. And so probably around um, the mid-'80s, late-'80s, I started tossing that term around more and more. And um, I think at some point someone said something to the effect that, you know, you, since you write this stuff, maybe you're, maybe you're Mr. Magic Realism. I can't remember who said that or how it came about, but it stuck. I go, well, I'll, I'll, I'll take that. Sure, I'll take that. And before long, I um, uh, had a dream in which I saw myself in a white suit with a red turtleneck. I'm going like, that's my... That's my that's my badge. That, that's that's what Mr. Magic Realism looked like, and the white top hat. So that became my um, my kind of costume, if you will. I figure if I'm going to be this obvious, and you know, really putting myself out there, then what I got to do is really good, and it's got to be the best it can be. And so um, it turned out that as time went on. Uh, more and more people identified me as Mr. Magic Realism, and I began to get more and more intake, if you will, that uh, what I was writing was indeed strange and odd, but it worked, and people saw me doing it as, as doing it pretty good. And so that's just kind of the way things went on from there, and so I kept on, you know, basically continuing to write what I enjoyed writing, but also really looking at um, uh, being out there and having just a lot of fun with it. And the white costume gave people a sense that, you know, I wasn't really taking myself all that you know, seriously. I was, having, I was having fun with this stuff. And, you know, when you have fun, you become kind of a magnet and people get interested. And so that's just kind of how it's kept on moving and going, and that's kind of the story of how it all came about. So how did you get into publishing? It's, I mean, it sounds like you're writing something different than most people. Like, were you submitting to magazines, or how did that work? I was submitting to everything. Um, for a long time, there was a newsletter out there called uh, Scavenger's Newsletter, a little publication that I received in the mail. And no matter what the mark, you know, if if it looked like it was something that the um, editors kind of looked like they might be interested in, I'd make sure that I always queried them. I would make sure that I knew to the best of my ability what they were looking for. And, um, you know, I would just send the material out and um, keep it out there. Sometimes, Sometimes, again, it was like sending out 40 stories a month, and it's just it's just incredible, um, if you will, grunt work. It's just something that you do, and you just keep it out there, and you just do you just research like crazy. Everything that looks like it might be oriented to what you're doing, but having said that, that's just the mark of what is to be professional in terms of you've got the work. You've done the work and and you've gotten feedback on. And we have a I'm in a monthly critique group, and nothing goes out without it being first critiqued. 
and I take in the comments and I work with it. So I make sure that someone else's eyes has seen it. And then comes the job of looking for the market for the work. And that just goes, that means going online. That means picking up copies of the magazine. That means uh, looking at all possibilities. That means going out and meeting people. That means going out and talking to people. And just being incredibly active. It means going, now it means going to websites and making sure that what they're publishing is kind of up, up you know, kind of what you're, you're doing. So it's all that stuff. It's just really fine-tuning um, what you're what you're doing, and you just you just don't stop. The biggest thing I think that stops writers or would-be writers is probably the is the over-identification with the work. And what I mean by that, it's 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 fine to be thoroughly in love with what you're doing. That's that, that's not the problem because you really gotta love what you're doing. But then you have to do something like be something of a of a business person and step back and look at what you're doing as kind of a business proposition. That you've done this work, you like it, but you step back from it, you send it out with the idea that you don't know what's going to happen to it, and that if it comes back, it's only because this business deal didn't work. And it's not about the story. It's not about the story being rejected and therefore you're not a good writer. Because if you go there, if you over-identify with what you're doing, you're going to have problems. And it's in many ways, it's easier said than done, but it just comes through experience that you have no idea what anybody is going to think of your work unless they see it. And to and to hesitate about sending material out means you've already decided how they're going to respond, which means that you're a god, because only God knows the future. You can't do that. I've got things to do to be a god. That's 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 for God, okay? But my my <laughs> job is to enjoy what I've done. Take, get it out to the market that's most likely to be interested in it, and then let go. And if it comes back, so what? Author goes to someone else, and you just keep on doing it. And it's just it's just so important to not take rejection personally because because writing is so subjective. Some, you know, you may write a, what you think is a great story, and maybe it is a great story, and you send it off to an editor who's had a rotten day. You know, he's, he's late to work. Um, he or she has just spilled coffee on their, you know, on their, you know, new jacket, and they just, they, they you know, it's been snowing, and they got, you know, wet feet, and they get to the office, they're in a bad mood. They get to the story, and, you know, I, no, I don't want to look, I'm not, I'm not, read, I'm not in a good mood, you know. Had you sent it the next day, or had they gotten it the next day, or maybe the next week, when it was a beautiful day and everything went fine, the coffee was great, and they had a good, you know, they had shared a good joke over the, over the, you know, uh, over the coffee stand, and they get to work and they get this great story, they're in a great mood, oh, I love it, I'll, yeah, I'll publish that, mm-hmm. you know. 
I got a, I got a story back once that you know the pages were stuck together with mustard. Okay, someone obviously read it over their lunch break. <laughs> it's so subjective that you just must not, must not, must not take rejection personally. It just, it just you can't do that. The, the only thing you can do is make sure at the manuscript that you email or send out, however you send it out these days, you got to make sure that it fits their, um, that fits their format, that it fits their magazine, that you follow explicitly all the rules they set out for that. And doing that automatically, automatically you're professional by doing that. Then the next thing is the story itself has got to be goof-proof, uh, no misspellings. Um, it's got to, it's got to be as professional and clean looking as it possibly can look. Because when you think about how many stories and manuscripts editors get a day, I mean, I used to be a slush reader for, um, uh, manuscripts coming into Clarion Westwriter's workshop. And I could see what, 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 um, editors were dealing with. They got all these manuscripts. And you just get to the point where you did the first paragraph. As the first paragraph doesn't take you, then you're not going to read the second paragraph. And back it goes in uh, back it goes in the envelope, or back it goes you know back it goes to the uh, to the email. And I mean the, the 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 amount of material coming into editors for publication is just. It is unbelievable. It is absolutely unbelievable. And that's why it takes a lot of discipline, just hard work, and getting good feedback to make sure that what you're sending out there is the best that it can possibly be and that it fits as best it can to what the editor is looking for. Otherwise, you know, you're going to, you're going to earn the reputation of someone who you know, doesn't follow, who's not interested in, in following what it is he wants, or, and you just can't afford to do that. So that's, that's kind of the way it works. It's just this, you know, it's just, it's, it's just plain work. And it's just being professional. I wonder if you could maybe highlight some of the stages in your writing, maybe some of the lessons that you learned through stories that stick out in your memory, uh, maybe including your time at Clarion? Well, probably, um, you know, sometimes it's daunting when you get feedback. Because in Clarion, I got some, you know, feedback that made me look at my work and made me realize that um I had work to do if I wanted to be a professional writer. Uh, I had a lot to do in terms of not taking rejections so personally, one. And two, uh, I had to really acknowledge that I had to really hone, I know, really um, hone my craft as having the, um, having the uh, ability to know and develop myself in terms of use of language. And that's just, a, that's just an apprenticeship. You just keep on 
and I really just had to keep on writing and reading and see how the how the best had done it. But also, also too, what I learned is um, through a lot of through a lot of time and a lot of effort and a lot of mistakes, realized that I wrote best what I love to read. And looking back on it, that should have been obvious from the get-go. If you write what you love to read, then you will write well. And if you're going to if you're going to write well, then read the best examples of what's out there, what you wish to write. So when I think back on um, folks like Kafka, I mean, I love Kafka. His what he does is fantastic, and I find I can write that way. And so I just kind of fit into that mode of thinking that that looks. I find that I write magic realism well because that's kind of the way I think. And so you so you look at what is out there that you like that works, and you say that that that's what I like to do. So I'm going to do that. So there's nothing wrong with any form of writing that one chooses. Um, if you, you know, a person loves detective stories, and they're probably going to write detective stories pretty well. If one thinks in terms of writing for the commercial market, but is not really invested into doing a good job with that, and is just kind of going out there and trying to make money by writing a next best vampire thriller, that's not really what they really, really want to do. It's going to show. And you, you can tell. You can tell when something isn't true in terms of energy and spirit. And a good example of that was a gentleman, I'm not going to name names, but um, who's a, a very good friend. And uh, he had done well writing in the um, kind of the Tolkien world, but he was getting tired of it. But he had a contract, and he had a lot of contracts. He kept writing in that world, though he was really getting tired of it. And he, and just before he just kind of bailed on the whole thing, he published got the book published, and the introduction was something to behold in terms of incomprehensibility, because it was just words. He was just putting down this stuff. It's like it was like a machine had written it. There was no there's just nothing in there, and it was the densest, most difficult prose I have ever read. I couldn't get past the first paragraph. I just had to put the book down. And happily, he never asked me what I thought of it. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> this is good. And I, and I, I wouldn't have known what to have said because it was clear that he was just doing it for the money. And... I don't think one is ever going to do well unless what you're doing for money is also what you love to write anyway. That's the perfect, that is the absolute perfect match. And all you got to do is look at Bradbury and there you go. You know, he, you know, did well. So I think that, I think people do best when they really enjoy writing what they love to read. And I think that, for me, is a real good definition of 
success because you, you can't fail because you're going to be enjoying too much what you're doing. How can you fail? <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. So that's, that, that was a very, very important lesson. The other lesson, I think, again, is to, um, if you're really taking rejection personally, get on top of that because it will get in your way big time. And that's, it's just not okay to be, to be uptight with that. The other thing I think I learned was watching out for unconscious expectations because those are absolutely deadly. We get into this thing about thinking, I, I want nothing about it, of course, you know, thinking that you got a, something out there and you know, all of a sudden, you know, the world is going to come running up to your doorstep with contracts, you know, and uh, gosh, must have been in the mid, mid-80s, I sent out like, sent out a story and made it into a major market. And I'm going like, oh, oh yeah, my, my time is here. Anything I, and unconsciously, I was going like, anything I send out is probably going to be picked up for publication. You know, this hubris, you know, okay. So I sent out like 40 stories in just a couple of days. And I thought, I was just kind of sitting back waiting for the tape, wait, waiting for the cash to come in, you know, waiting for the, <laughs> the contract. Like, here comes baby, you know, and about two weeks later, I got 17 back in one day. <laughs> it was like it was like being covered. Mm. And I realized the reason that what had happened was that I simply had assumed unconsciously that things were going to go my way. And the world doesn't quite work like that. And I don't have that control. And that was kind of a that was kind of a tough lesson, but I learned that what you do is you do the best you can with it. You get it out there and let go. Above all, let go and have no expectations, because in the end, I've heard it said, and I think it's quite true that um, what's the saying? Um, expectations are nothing more than premeditated resentments. And that is so true. <laughs> that is just absolutely so true. Uh, some of the other things I've learned along the way is how subjective, I mentioned this before, how subjective this writing business really is. I mean, it's just so subjective. And it just doesn't pay to be too upset when you get something back because it's just, you know, an editor may just absolutely abhor what you're doing, and other people or person just may just really love it. And one of the things, an example of this is one thing I love to do is I like to love to write in, in second person you. And some people call it also second person obnoxious. <laughs> and um, so I sent this story off written in second person you because I just think I, I play. I like to experiment. I like to I like the form of that. You know, I like how that sounds. It's, because everyone does fight. A lot of people do talk in second person you. We hear it all the time. Oh, well, you know, well, what do you think about that? Yeah, you know how it is. Yeah, you, you get your paycheck, and yeah, yeah, and we all kind of talk in second person you. And so I thought, gosh, what a fun, what a fun concept to explore. So I wrote a story and sent it off to someone, to an editor, and I got that story back at light speed almost the day before I sent it, you know, and just with a blistering comment about how how terrible the storytelling technique this is and what was I doing and got it out of that. And I realized, oh, oh, 
okay, she came from a background probably where there was a lot of poisonous you statements. You bad kid. You didn't do this right. What's wrong with you? And I'm going like, oh, crap. Oh. And when I saw her, you know, sometime later, I kind of knew that that's, <laughs> that's what that was about and realized that I probably shouldn't be sending stories to her written in second person you because it reminds her of someone who gave her a bad time in her, her past. And and in an interview, she talked about her background, and I'm going like, um, oh, yeah, okay, well, you know. So when you're out there being um, experimental and artistic and doing some really kind of off-the-wall strange things, you're going to get responses that are just going to be all over the map. So, you know, you, you, that's the chance you take. Having said that, if you spend all your time really trying to make something work for a market and suddenly the market goes away, well, the flip side of that is that you spend an awful lot of time writing something that may not have any saleability for quite some time, if ever. So there's two ways to look at all this stuff. You know, and one has to make the choice about one really want where one really wants to put one's energy and what works best. Well, there's many more examples, but those are are the more intriguing (laughs) intriguing ones. So for someone that has been publishing for, what, mm, 30 years? I've been publishing, oh gosh, if, if I look at everything, uh, even going back to college, um, probably close to, um, gosh, 40 years, I think. Mm-hmm. But for, but in, in the area of, of imaginative literature, uh, my first works came out in two anthologies nationally in 77 and 79, New Dimensions, edited by Robert Silverberg. So professionally, um, gosh, She's um, 35, 37 years professionally. Mm-hmm. So how, if at all, are you adapting to uh, this new style of literature that you're seeing nowadays? I mean, I noticed that some of the books I read that I loved that were written in the 80s have different style than the ones that are coming out now. Are you modifying or working on your technique in any certain way? Uh, no. <laughs> no, no. I'm just going to continue doing what I'm doing. I do notice one thing I have, I don't know, um, one thing I have noticed is that um, I've always enjoyed writing material in um, short, um, uh, fairly short paragraphs, not paragraphs, uh, chapters. Um, in one book, um, Kafka's Uncle and Other Strange Tales, the um, main story, Kafka's Uncle, consisted of somewhere around, I think, uh, 30-odd, 30-odd um, chapters, but the chapters are sometimes more, no more than like two pages. Um, 
Now, I don't know if I was beginning to pick up on the shortening of the uh, attention span of Americans or what, or maybe I was, I don't know. Um, but also, that was just a form that I that, that worked for what I was doing. Um, so, I don't know if that I, I guess you know I'm going to write what I what I, what I love to write and whatever else is going on around me. I guess I, I uh, it's, just not, it's not going to change what I'm doing because I I'm doing what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. Do you have thoughts about self-publishing versus traditional publishing? It's 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 really a it's a difficult area because traditional publishing. Have always been kind of the gatekeepers, and they've always been oriented toward. Um, I'm talking about traditional publishing up to the 80s. Okay, um, they're oriented toward the writer doing the writing, and they took care of the promotion, they took care of the distribution, whatnot. But it prevented a lot of people from getting into writing because it was so oriented toward you know the status quo if you will it was oriented toward a certain viewpoint that if you didn't fit that viewpoint then not much much happened um, what's happening right now is that everybody is or everybody can be their own publisher that's well and good the problem being that well, not only are your own your own publisher, but you you are your own distributor, and you are your own promoter, and you are your own marketer, and that's daunting because that takes so much energy away from the writing in and of itself. So we trade one set of problems for another set of problems, and with this other set of problems comes the reality that there are just so many people. Publishing, it is it's it's amazing, and, it's, and it takes so much work, more more than ever, to make the connections out there with with what you're doing. And so, a writer nowadays is basically literally forced to um, spend a lot of time figuring out how to get their work out there to people in one sense writing you know self-publishing now gives you freedom that people have just never ever ever had before so you don't have to worry about uh, you know about an editor not responding to you not understanding what you're doing holding on to a book for two years you don't have to worry about that stuff anymore but the other flip side of that is all the work is on you and then the question becomes for anyone well, what is the best way to draw attention to what you're doing that invites people in in a way that they don't feel like they're being spammed, <laughs> you know? Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a really difficult, difficult area. And the only thing I can think of are solutions to that is like you know, just dedicate one day to doing everything regarding promotion of your work, and that gets into Facebook, that gets into blogging, 
that gets into, um, you know, tweeting and um, all this and having a website that is just, you know, um, always up to date, um, like mine isn't, <laughs> which I have to do something about. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, just keeping the word out there, doing things that make people aware of you. And I don't want to say celebrity. I mean, since when did writing become about celebrity? But but that's where a lot of it's moving to, and it's really unfortunate because it's not about being a celebrity. It's about being a writer. It's about thinking. It's about connection. It's about um, not about. It's not about art making you a spectacle. It's about art in and of itself being something that people want to engage in so that they can learn something about themselves, about the world. And that's always traditionally been the way it's been. And those people who are, you know, folks who are memorable artists are those who took the time to, to if you will, isolate, to think, to be as articulate as they could be with how and what the perception was of the world. And that's more of a challenge now when you always have to think about having to make money, having to, you know, having to tweet, having to take, and it's like all this distraction, I think is kind of getting in the way of people being as artistically articulate as once was the case. I hope I'm mistaken with that. Um, I see a lot of material out there that is frankly not well written with a lot of mistakes. And it's like it's like um, they're so into the technical computer aspect of this that they kind of forgot how to really tell a story that connected or connects with people. And I, and um, I don't know. That's just kind of my my take on it. So it's it's unfortunate. Will yes. Will you be uh, pursuing traditional publishing? Always gone through a gatekeeper? Do you think, or is there anything that you would consider self-publishing? I will publish in whatever way uh, works to get my material out there, um, and. Uh, self-publishing. I mean, I have self-published. I have done that. I've done that with several books. I did that with uh, two books. Um, one was um, one was uh, Mountains of the Night, which was a spiritual exploration of illness. And the other one was um, Magic of Wild Places, which was about my relationship with my father. And I self-published because I realized that um, a lot of people had seen the work. A lot of people had commented on it, but it didn't quite fit where, you know, it didn't quite fit in a lot of places. And I thought, if I don't get this out there, God knows when it's going to get out. And as it turned out, um, the books did get out there. They got distributed. Um, and for whatever reason, within three days after one came out, I got a phone call, or I got an email from a major publicist in Hollywood who wanted to take me on at the 
that's a, at, at the rate of only $3,500 a month, which was a little bit on my price range, but we left it kind of open. But um, also now the book is sitting at my agent, Ben Bova, and, uh, and, I, and he's looking into getting it to uh, major houses uh, that require an agent. So, you know, uh, these books came out on the Espresso book machine here in Seattle under the uh, very fine workmanship of uh, one Vladimir Perano at Third Place Books, who did a wonderful job with the cover and did just a really beautiful job of the interior. The Espresso book machine, by the way, is a uh, is a um, automated process whereby you get a book published in like uh, 15 minutes. And it's right there. It's all ready to go, and it's all ready for you to to do something with it. So, so there's all these avenues out there to get to get to get published. But the big thing again is is that distribution is up to you. But having said that, having said that, I've got a contract with a publisher that says you know and this is a, this is a good publisher said so that um, you know it's expected that you will promote this work by whatever means possible. So, well, so what's the difference in many ways? you got to do it. A big publisher expects you to do the same type of work that you end up kind of doing yourself unless you have a name like Stephen King or Dean Koontz or, you know, those folks have, have, the, have this thing all set up regarding their publisher, they're the ones who are bringing in the money, and so they get the monies for mass promotion. So they can write what they want to write, provided it's being seen as bringing in more cash. So that's the bottom line here. Mm-hmm. So there you go. Going back to what you said earlier about reading what you love, I, yeah. I wonder if you could share with us some of the stories that you loved writing and I mean, I'm sure many of them were, but if you could just pick a few, some of the stories that you loved writing, what you loved about them, and maybe um, challenges that you had to get them out there. Not like publishing, but just to finish the story. Um, well, I did a collection of stories. It was called, um, oh gosh, it finally, it finally folded into a um, a book called Edward Dancing on the Edge of Infinity. And those stories that made up that book were originally set out as single stories. And um, the, the response that I was getting when I was sending this stuff out was basically, we like this. Again, we don't really know what you're doing. It doesn't quite fit, but we like what you're doing. So the editors who are getting this material kind of had their, had their hands tied with a form of, of publishing that they couldn't really get away from. And so the challenge for me was to continue writing what I love to write, knowing that apparently it was respected, but you know, it probably wasn't going to get out there in a, you know, in a big way as I, as I, would, as I was hoping. Um, and some of those stories were really were pretty um pretty off the wall. One was one story. Um, 
what was the name of that? Um, Coming home so cold was about the uh, was about my grandfather on my mother's side, and it turned out to be a a ghost story. Um, and it was wonderful to write. Um, it was um, difficult to write because I was dealing with how much I cared about my grandfather, and it also was dealing with finally his his death and it was a story that went out to a lot of editors who kind of shied away from that saying this is just too personal for us to spend too much with okay but you know the story worked for me because it um, it uh, really gave me a perspective on just what kind of impact my grandfather had on me. Uh, pretty, pretty cool. Really, really pretty cool story. Um, another story that you know had some interesting um, um, uh, impact, if you will, was a story called the coat, and it was all metaphor. It's probably one of the Better, probably one of the best magic realist stories that I think I've done. It's about this kid who grew up in his father's heavy black coat, and everyone notices the black coat except for the kid, and he doesn't really know quite what's going on or why he has it. And so as he grows up in this heavy black coat, everyone kind of asks him about it, but he just doesn't quite quite understand, and he's not getting any help from his parents because his father said you know what like you know i i had that you know someone passed on that black coat to me and i wore it i'm passing it on to you and you'll wear it and i'm sure you'll love it and get used to it like i got used to it and and the metaphor is of course that the coat is the is taking on someone else's opinion of ourselves rather than believing in ourselves and people do that to get love People believe about themselves all sorts of stuff so they won't be left, so they won't be hurt, so they won't be, you know, be abandoned, so they get love. However, a person distorts themselves to the image of someone else to get their needs met, that's the coat. And what the kid finally does is he's in high school and he's still wearing this coat and he meets this young lady who talks to him about the coat that her father used to wear and she starts to cry and he reaches out to touch her and as he does so the coat pulls away from himself he can look inside the coat and see the colors of the clothing that he truly wore which meant that he had a lot of work to do to shed that coat and to become himself to become authentic and that story has gotten reprinted probably about four or five times because everyone understands the metaphor that's one of the more real positive things that that happened, and how a story can um, do something that you just didn't quite quite anticipate. Um, so, <clears throat> where could uh, people uh, find that story right now? Do you know anything that's still in print that has that? Oh yeah, that's in. Um, let's see. I gosh. 
<laughs> Where did that go? <laughs> I believe that is uh, in. Um, I believe that's in the final trick of Funny Man, and that's just that's available in ebook. That's still in print. That's in print from Fairwood Press, and that's uh, available at um, BaneEbooks.com as an ebook. Yeah. So there's a lot. There's a lot of stories like that that people would read and. You know, writing like that and kind of writing that magic real Spain is kind of, kind of sneaking into the back door because I mean it's just a metaphor. It's, I mean, my goodness, who who can be upset by a metaphor? Except why am I feeling kind of weird when I read that story? What stories kind of linger <laughs> with people because they're done in a different, different way. I'm not, and that's the beauty of metaphors that you can get away with anything. And people think that's kind of entertaining, except they kind of look back going like, wait a minute, why do I keep thinking about that story? What is the quote? Wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, yeah, that's, I guess, you know, in, in, in the big picture, that's why writing in the form of magic realism is, is so much fun, because so much of it is metaphor. And it, it works, it works well. It's, 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 good. it's a good form of storytelling. I wonder if there's any stories that you could tell us. Uh, I mean, I, you're you're friends with some of the, the heroes of science fiction. I mean, your agent's Ben Bova. How cool is that? Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah, pretty good. There, I mean, I've been asked before to tell a story without any preemptive information, and I couldn't do it, but... I'm just wondering if there's some kind of a story that you could tell us that our uh, our readers would just find fascinating or funny or or whatever. <laughs> oh, oh, I can. <laughs> oh, there's one <clears throat> on the nature of rejection. Oh God, um, this shows you how how incredibly subjective it is. Um, wrote a story. Um, gosh. Um, the, oh, gosh, what was it? Um, that name slips my, my mind right now, but I sent it off to this, uh, sent it off to this, um, this editor of a major um, of a major um, publication, and he just raved about it. Oh, he thought that was a great story, but it wasn't quite what he was looking for. But God, he just loved it, just absolutely loved it. You know, I'm going, oh, okay, well, thank you very much. I'm glad you liked it. And I sent it off to this other editor, who I still have. <laughs> I, I still got the. I still got the rejection pinned above my desk where I can read it. I, just, I love looking at it. He said, "This story is dreadful. This is this sounds like a pneumatic drill at five o'clock in the morning. What's wrong with you? You can't write. You should be ashamed of yourself." He went on to this for, for an entire <laughs> wow. paragraph. You know, just absolutely hated it. And if you don't get this, why why this sounds so bad? Doesn't just sound like fingernails screeching on a blackboard. This just tore it apart. And I'm going like. 
Well, that's interesting, isn't it? You know, <laughs> okay, two entirely different responses. Okay. So um, a friend of mine came over sometime later, and he said, I, I heard a tale about this rejection. Oh, can you tell me more about that? I said, well, here's the story. You know, he read it, and he said, you didn't. And I said, I didn't. What didn't I? What? What? <laughs> he said, you sent it to this. You sent the story to that guy who gave you that terrible rejection. What were you thinking of? I'm going like, what, 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 wait a minute, what are you talking about? He said, oh, you didn't know, did you? I said, what didn't I know? He said, oh, well, um, it's like this. This story is warm, loving, and it's written by a male. And the editor you sent it to um, has just gone through a divorce, and he's just had a horrendous relationship with um, you know, someone else, and this brought up stuff in him that he couldn't handle. You, you couldn't have picked the worst editor to send that story to. And I'm like, well, it would have been nice to know that earlier, I guess, but I wouldn't have had this charming rejection. <laughs> Sometimes stories can be therapeutic to write, and other times they can be ther- therapeutic to criticize, I guess. Oh yeah, oh yeah, because he was he was you know he was bombing me where he couldn't stand it himself, you know. <laughs> oh well, um, you know, it's 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 it was his problem. It would have been my problem had I accepted the criticism. Mm-hmm. And I knew that that was off base. And after I understood what had happened, I just felt felt kind of sorry for him and said, "Well, gee, that's too bad." Um, I guess I guess later on he got got married and got in a much better relationship. I guess he's pretty happy now, but I'll never send him my story again. <laughs> Have you been tempted to to try another story on him, just to see? Oh, oh, I don't want to be mean to the guy. <laughs> that would that wouldn't be nice. No. <laughs> well, maybe we'll have one that's a, got a different theme, just to see if. If he likes other kinds of stories, but. well, you know, there you got in all of this writing business, you really have to pick your battles carefully. Uh, word gets around, and you know, if something doesn't work for someone. Believe me, there are so many, there are so many venues open for publication. It's just, it's immense. There's always someone publishing something, and there's so many good people out there who would very much like to see what you're doing and have a great time with it. I mean, there's just so much, for every crummy thing that happens, there's probably five or six really good, really, really, oh, hell, dozens of good things that happen. But one or two bad things that happen, it's just not worth, it's really not worth really spending a lot of time and energy being too upset about. Mm-hmm. People are largely kind of unconscious about how they can come across, and later on they kind of get it, and they can maybe feel not not so hot. But that that's the way it goes. You just can't spend time being too awfully upset because all it does it doesn't really change anything. And you know, the one that's left feeling kind of crummy is you. So why why bother? This is not important. Uh, another tale. 
was uh, by um, was of the book Edward Dancing on the Edge of Infinity, which had which when I wrote it was based on the work of Carl Kopeck's War with the Newts, and I thought and War with the Newts is just a marvelous tale, and it's written a lot of it's written in the form of um, of footnotes, and the footnotes are are hilarious. They tell you all sorts of information that is sometimes relevant to the story and sometimes totally not relevant to the story. Who cares? Kopic had a great time writing this thing and was an instant overnight success in Czechoslovakia in 1933. And I thought, well, if he can do it, I can do it. Well, 20 years later, the book hadn't sold. <laughs> and um, I'm going, okay, okay. And finally, I sent it off to this one publisher in the Northwest who got a hold of it and he said, okay, well, I'll look at this. I'll get back to you in a couple of months. A couple of months, nothing. And I said, um, any, any work? Oh, no, no, I got delayed here. Well, I'll get back to you. Uh, give me a couple more months. Okay, a couple more months pass, you know. And get back to him and said, well, what's happening? Oh, oh, that, oh, I'm so sorry. I just haven't got to that, your book yet. Well, give me a couple more months. And in the meantime, in the meantime, I met this charming, utterly charming um, editor at Norwescon, Heidi Lampetti, who's the editor of Red Jack Press. And we just started yakking and talking. And um, she said, well, what are you doing? What, what kind of writing you got? And I was telling her about um, well, what I was doing. And she said, um, well, gosh, well, that book, um, Edward, Dancing on the Age of Infinity, um, that's out to someone. I said, oh, yeah, well, she said, can I look at it anyway? And I said, oh, yeah, sure, sure. So uh, she read it over, and she said, um, gosh, um, well, um, gosh, you know, I can't do anything since it's tied up with someone else right now, but, um, you know, if you were to ask them politely if uh, they were going to do anything with it to get back to you in a couple of weeks, then if they didn't, then maybe it might be, I'm going to take a look at it again. I said, Oh, I think I could probably do something like that. And uh, so I wrote this editor. I said, look, you know, um, you've had the book, and how about if I give you a couple of more weeks to look at it and make a decision before you get back to me? And I didn't hear anything. And a couple of weeks later, I got back in touch with him. I said, well, you know, it's been a couple of weeks. Said, oh, well, oh, that book, your book, oh, I, I threw it in the trash. I said, "Wow." Um, oh, and he said, "Yeah, I'm I, I just tired of being hassled by you." And I said, "I gave you plenty of time." He said, "I'll, I'll tell you what. I'll, I'll reimburse you the cost of the, of the Xeroxing, you know." And, um, I was, I was just floored. I mean, that's one time I was truly, truly floored by, you know, I gave the guy more than enough time more than enough extensions and he you know so I didn't tell him that anyone else was interested in the book I just said look you know I I bought a decision and he he lost it needless to say his loss was um, Heidi's gain and the book came out and it's been going to a lot of good places and um, um, uh, gosh it's uh, it's I've gotten a lot of really good really good feedback on it a really good feedback. So tell, really tell us a little bit about the the story. 
Well, it's about this. It's about this guy Edward, who, who some people think I don't know why. I kind of think it may, might be like it might be something uh, maybe about me. I, I don't know where people get that. I, I figure that out. It's just stories that may have just this kind of haunting similarity to things in my childhood. But uh, you know, who, who knows? I mean. We, we we writers write, then we write from our heart, and sometimes we just kind of resonate with, with things that could appear to be uh, <coughs> considered <coughs> autobiographical, but I I don't know. I, I, I <laughs> so the book is about um, something that could be perceived, I suppose, as somewhat semi-autobiographical in a very fun sort of way, and it's in a series of footnotes. The stories the stories are hooked together by footnotes, and there's uh, recipes in there for an avocado salad so you won't starve while you're reading the book. There's lists of things to do that you must do, like, um, you know, watering the plants, uh, eating, taking care of the cat, that you must remember to do so that you won't get into trouble. If you get so involved with the book that if you get to do these things, there are going to be problems, and I, as the author, may have to take responsibility for that, you know, for your demise. I can't do that, of course. And there's places in the book where you can do artwork, and there's places in the book where you can jot down ideas about the book. There's at the back of the end of the book, there's a place where you can jot down all your complaints about the book. Um, there's drawings, and there's all sorts of stuff there. And it's all in the spirit of, of fun, just having a good time with the book. And... Um, it kind of talks about this character Edward, who grows up to move from basically a kind of a childish way of looking at the world through the eyes of someone who realizes what's truly important in life, and that's that's love and connection with other people and being a part of the world. So it ends on a very um, ends on a very beautiful and very profound note of connection. So. Uh, yeah, that came out in 2007. Got an advance on that. That was nice. And um, Patricia Briggs took me aside at Radcon a couple of years back and just told me that uh, she was she was reading the book with others in a in a reading group and just wanted to say how much she appreciated what I was doing for the field of science fiction in terms of broadening it and making it more. Um, uh, giving a, a, a deeper uh, sense of its of its purpose, and I was just like I was just floored by by the commentary. But I really appreciated what you had to say. So, yeah, it's 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 a fun read. Also, on page forty nine, the mystery of life has been solved. So, I'll let, you know, if anyone wants to read that book, they can. They can find out what the mystery of life is all about and have the, have the solution right there before them in one page. It's on page 49, not page 42. <laughs> I think it's page 49. <laughs> well, we're going yeah. to put all the stories and books that you mentioned in the show notes for this podcast so people will be able to, to click there and uh, and go buy it and read it. I believe I have that one, so I'm excited. 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's a fun read. It's just really fun. I had a great, I had such a great time doing that. I just didn't realize it would take me twenty years <laughs> to get it published. But you never know. The thing is, you have a great. You have a. I guess the thing I really want to leave people with is the idea that when you have a good time doing something, you know, it works. And that's kind of the way how, like, Water for Quartz got into the hands of, of Ben Bovey at uh, Radcon, and we just finished this book, and we were sitting in the um, autograph section there, and uh, the chairs to my left were empty, and here comes Ben Bovey and his, uh, you know, beautiful fiance, and they uh, kind of point to the chairs, and they say, anyone sitting there? And I'm going like... No, but you you can. Beside me, start chatting, you know. And during the uh, during the um, few nanoseconds, I had to connect with him with all the lines of people coming to have him sign an autograph, you know, his books. I just pointed to like Warford Quarks, and I said, um, you know, I'd be really interested in if you'd like having you have a copy of this, and if you're so inclined, if you'd like to give us some feedback, what you think about it, that'd be really cool. He said, oh. Please, yeah, I'll be happy to take it. And then a couple of days later, um, an email said I was really impressed by it, and if you are looking for a presentation, uh, do something larger with it, um, please let me know. And I said, oh, I think I can do that. Uh, yes, I think you can do this. <laughs> yes, indeed. And it's just one of those things. You get out there with the best energy you have, doing the best job that you can, being authentic as you can possibly be, and you will meet the people you need to meet to have a good life. That's really what it's all about in the end. Hmm. I agree. Well, thanks for thanks for sharing your story with us, Bruce. Uh, it is a pleasure, and I thank you so much for this opportunity. It's, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Well, I... Uh, I took notes as I was reading Like Water for Quarks on all the stories, and uh, so I need to get my review up for that, and then I'll be ready to have a conversation about that. Um, maybe in the mean, good to me. maybe in the meantime, I'll be able to read your Edward book too. Yeah, I'd love to have your opinion on it. <laughs> yeah, I'd like to. Yeah, yeah. Um, out of everything I've done, I'm. I guess I guess that's the one that I really like to see something something happen to. That's one uh that's the one that has the greatest, I think, um greatest potential for something happening. That almost won a contest and a comment. It came back in the top one of the top finalists, top five finalists in a contest and the commentary was that um it was an extremely interesting book and they just didn't quite know from a commercial standpoint, how to handle it, but we're very grateful for me to send it. We're like, wow, that's really kind of nice. That comment in and of itself was quite gratifying. Hmm. Very good. Well, I'm excited. Well, thank you, and uh, I hope you enjoy the work, and uh, thank you again for this opportunity. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, it has been. Uh, let's see. So people can find more of Bruce's stuff at Bruce B. Uh, B. Yep. Taylor. What's B stand for? Bradley. Okay. So, BruceBTaylor.com. All right. Okay, guys, go support Bruce and his stories, and uh, and go post some reviews too. Show him some love. 
thank you. All right. Thanks, Bruce. Take care until next time. Okay. And thank you very much. Visit Bye-bye. Adventures in Sci-Fi Publishing for show notes, links, reviews, special guests, videos, and more. Email us at adventuresinsci-fi-publishing at gmail.com. Sound effects from the Free Sounds Project. Music by Asymmetry, found at musically.com. No authors were seriously damaged in the making of this podcast. <laughs>